Today's verse is Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, who know, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of the prophets. Thank you, Brad. The Christian life is hard. Can I get an amen? This is unsurprising because Jesus tells us that those who wish to follow him must take up their crosses. He calls us to do things which, you know, if we didn't care about pursuing righteousness and killing sin, uh, life would just be much easier. We would just live with those things. It is hard to resist anger and lust. It is hard to let our yes be yes and our no be no. It is hard to turn the other cheek. Now, that doesn't mean that the non-Christian life is better, but it is easier to indulge the sinful flesh. If China invaded Darwin, uh, it would be harder to fight back and much easier to raise the white flag. But life would not be better. How can we, as followers of Jesus, fight for righteousness. In our passage this morning, Jesus gives us one of the most important and powerful weapons of our warfare, prayer. And in the final verse, he summarizes a big portion of the Christian life with what has come to be known as the golden rule. And so this morning, we'll look at our passage through two headings, which I Uh, also tried to capture in the title of the sermon. Firstly, pray like a prince or a princess. And secondly, live life outward. As we have already prayed, uh, may God give us all ears to hear and hearts ready to respond. Let's begin with our first point. Pray like a prince slash princess. That's not to pray for both. It's if you're a male, you you can be a prince. If you're a female, princess. This morning's passage uh, is one that is very familiar to most Christians. I mean, hands up if you've, if you're pretty familiar with this verse, heard it before, heard it many times, yeah. And my guess is that for most Christians, uh, it is also one that we have found difficult to interpret and apply. Now, I'm sure I'm not alone in having heard this verse quoted to justify the so-called prosperity teaching, all right? Well, let's come to the text and hear what God is saying. From verse 7, 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Let me say up front, it is blasphemous to say that God wants you to have faith to provide a $65 million jet. Or to make it more relatable to us, that God wants you to indulge in any worldly thing and to have the faith to ask for it. Prosperity teachers falsely teach that uh, that kind of thing and they often use this verse in support of it. But you know, even though they mess it up so badly, they do get something right. And that is that they are confident that God will provide. Just listen to the way Jesus phrases these verses. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus uses these images to refer to the kind of access that we have to God through prayer. We ask, we seek, we knock, we continue to persist. And what's God's response? He will answer. Now, don't skip over that, brothers and sisters. You know, for me personally, coming out of some of that that movement, some of that teaching, it would be easy for me to swing in the opposite direction and lose the confidence of what Jesus is saying here about how the Father responds. He gives us every reason to be confident in that fact. So much so that actually he reiterates it. Notice verse 8 is actually not necessary to make the point. Jesus has already made the point in verse 7. Verse 8 is, is really an, an unnecessary extra, extra, but Jesus says it because he is driving home the point. He wants you to grasp that our Father will respond. You notice how in each of these instructions there is this sense of being persistent. One doesn't just ask, but also seeks. Now, kids, I'm sure you have played hide-and-seek before, yeah? Hands up if you've played it. Yeah. Who's really good at it? Who's the best in our... Oh, I've, I, yeah, hands up. Oh, you know, there's some humility right there. You know, I, I was hoping you would... I thought you might nominate somebody else, but no, it's like, no, me, that's me. Now, when you're playing with a two-year-old, right... It's usually easy to find them, isn't it? You know, because, I mean, they, they don't really, you know, they just kind of wonder. They're just loving the fact that everyone's running and laughing and they just join in. Yeah? But once you get to the double-digit ages, you know, 10 and above, it can be a lot trickier to find them, can't it? They, they know how to disguise themselves, you know, make it look like they're just a curtain. Yeah? You have to seek harder. That's what Jesus is getting at, seeking, looking for. That is what we do as we pursue God and, and as we pray. And we don't just seek, but we also knock. Now, if you were stuck in a remote location with no mobile phone service and there was only a single house, you know, in the distance, uh, in, within walking distance, well, that's where you would be going for help, wouldn't you? And, and how would you get help? Well, you would walk right up to the door 
and you would knock. And do you notice how each of these, asking, seeking, and knocking, each of them could have an unsuccessful outcome, right? What would it look like? Well, you could ask, and there could be no response. Right? You could be ghosted, as the people say today. Or you could, as I witnessed last week with a few kids playing hide-and-seek, be outwitted by the person hiding and never find them. They could just have the prime spot. You know, it wouldn't be hard for God to hide himself from you. He is God. Or you could knock and knock and knock until your knuckles bleed, but you still have the door slammed shut in your face. You see, the person on the inside has to open it up for you. Well, friends, that is not how it is for the child of God. We are not locked out of heaven. The one who asks will receive. The one who seeks will find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. That is a promise. That is a privilege. And it is the reality for every follower of Christ. Do we have that kind of confidence in God to answer our prayers? Well, that raises so many questions, doesn't it? As I mentioned before, I have struggled with uh, this verse ever since I was a child to make sense of it. After all, how many prayers have we prayed? How many things have we asked for that have gone unanswered? You know, sadly, we wrestle with this and we begin to doubt God or we begin to lose trust in Him because we have been wrongly taught what this means. And one of the simplest ways to address this is to consider the context, rather than just ripping these verses out and saying, oh, I see, I see what Jesus is saying. He's saying that God will give me everything I ask for. No. Consider the context. We've been preaching through the book of Matthew for several months now and have been hearing from the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time as well. Now, have you noticed that this sermon and in the sermons uh, that, that I've preached on the Sermon on the Mount have you noticed that there has so far been a lot of instruction? There's been a lot of Jesus telling his disciples how to live. And he addresses so many aspects of the Christian life and how we are to live it. It begins with the Beatitudes, which tell us about the character of the people who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. And he goes on to say that we are salt and light and that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he goes on to show how God's standards uh, were reduced by the Pharisees, but God's holiness is higher. He says not only are we uh, to not murder, but we are to not be angry. He says not only are we, are we to avoid adultery, but we are to not lust. Our standards of divorce, he says, need to, be, need to meet God's standards. Our words and our oaths must be careful, he says. He also says that we are to turn the other cheek and to love our enemies. 
And he goes on to say that, that in, in all of our almsgiving, our giving to the poor, in all of our prayer, in all of our fasting, we are to make sure that we do them not for the purpose of other people seeing us and what we do, but for the purpose of the Father alone seeing. We are to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth, to serve God and not money. And we are to bring all our anxieties to God and trust that He will provide for everything that we need in this life. We are to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And finally, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we are not to put ourselves in the place of God and to judge others, but instead to take the log out of our own eye. That's a lot of imperatives. That's a lot of things that the disciple of Christ is meant to live in in faithfulness to God, in faithful obedience and righteousness. None of these things are easy. All you have to do is hold this summary up to the life of your average Christian and it will be very easy to see how they are failing. And then once you've done that, all you need to do is hold this up against a mirror and realize that you've actually got a massive log in your own eye. We are all in that boat. How are we to live? Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How are we to possibly fulfill all that it takes to be faithful, spiritual, spirit-filled Christians? You see, when you realize that this is the context of these verses, they suddenly make so much more sense. Jesus is talking about the spirit-filled, kingdom-first life. When our prayers, when our seeking, when our knocking is all about this, God will answer. One way that we can discern our hearts is by asking how we respond to this truth. Is there a temptation or a desire for us to ignore everything he has said about storing up treasure in heaven and seeking first the kingdom of God? Are we disappointed that Jesus is not just giving us a blank check here to ask us for everything we want in the world? This is part of the battle, brothers and sisters. As sons and daughters of the king, we do not give in to the empire of the enemy. We don't surrender to sin. And so if we find ourselves wishing that God would just give us what we want, just, if, if I just want to take these verses out and I want them to mean that I can ask for whatever I like. If that is the way you find yourself thinking about this, then you are listening to the tempter. If that is how we think, then we are letting worm tongue get in our ears. I'm convinced that many of our doubts and our faltering in our trust in God would dissipate if we just surrendered our will to His. 
I'm confident that our disappointment in unanswered prayer or prayer answered in ways that we do not like would be relieved if we learned how to submit our own desires to the will of God. Elisha's servant Gehazi sought gold from Naaman, desiring earthly treasure instead of being content with the Lord's provision. What happened? He was cursed and received Naaman's leprosy as a result. Military coups occur when people reject the king's will. Mutinies happen when sailors, pirates disagree about the, the way, the direction that we're sailing. Faith is destroyed when we think that we know better than God about what is good for us. The Second London Baptist Confession summarizes the teaching of Scripture on prayer in this way. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. But that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. If only we could pray like this. But church, we can. The high king of heaven sent his only son to live a life of perfect obedience, to die a substitutionary death on a Roman cross so that our sin might be atoned for. And he was raised from the dead so that we might have life in him. If anyone, the promise of, of his word is that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Jesus ushered in a new kingdom which would welcome his people into a new covenant. A covenant that would replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. A covenant which is based on his grace and his obedience, not ours. A covenant that would turn our hearts towards seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first. If you're here this morning and you're wondering about Christianity, perhaps you are not one yourself, a Christian yourself, let me urge you to consider the good news of Jesus. And to recognize that your sin rightly deserves God's wrath, but he has provided a way of salvation for you from the consequences of your sin through faith in Jesus. It will cost you, that's for sure. But it is worth it. Life in pursuit of God's kingdom is not easier than chasing your heart's sinful desires, but it is better. It is infinitely better. And when a person turns from sin and trusts in Jesus, their prayers are transformed. Our hearts are no longer to desire the treasures of this life, of this earth, of this world. And though they may do battle, though the faithful disciple may do battle with the desires of their sinful flesh, though they will find, as, as Paul talks about in Romans 7, that there is a struggle. 
They still seek to replace all of that with prayers as Jesus has taught us. Prayers of pursuit of his kingdom. Prayers that he taught us as we read, saw several weeks ago. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we understand that this is what life is all about as a disciple of Christ, then we can ask, seek, and knock with the kind of confidence that Jesus gives us here. Brothers and sisters, you can approach the throne of grace with boldness. You can have the confidence of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were facing the furnace and they said, you know, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if not, we want you to know that we will never bow down. Our prayers when prayed in accordance with God's will, can have the confidence that Jesus says here. You might ask the question, well, what's the point of praying then? After all, God will accomplish his will. He's God, right? So my prayers, what do they do? They don't do anything. Just look at what those three guys just said. You know, they had confidence that God would save them, but, you know, but did they really? Because they were kind of like, he will save us, but, you know, even if he doesn't. Well, the first thing to say is that God has, in his divine sovereignty, ordained it so that his will is accomplished through our prayers. At the very least, it is not pointless because God has told us that it is not pointless, that this is how he works, this is how he has worked, this is how he continues to work, this is how he will work in human history through the prayers of his people. But secondly, the very act of praying and seeking to do so in accordance with His will deepens our trust in Him. Our prayers, when we submit them to God in this way, they grow us. Prayer helps us in living the Christian life, not just because God answers our prayers and our cries for help, but because the very act of praying focuses our hearts and our minds on His will. Jesus emphasizes this by way of illustration, illustration which we read in verse 9. Or oh, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. See, the, the illustration works because it's just so obvious. Even us, 2,000 years after Jesus spoke these words in a completely different time, in a completely different place, with a completely different culture, we can still very plainly see that giving a child a stone when he asks for bread or, or, or a serpent when she asks for fish is terrible parenting. You don't have to do a parenting course to know that that's bad. And you don't have to be a Christian to be able to see this. Well, this is why Jesus makes that so clear when he refers to his hearers as those who are evil. Man, that's a bit harsh, don't you think? Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. 
The same ones that he has just instructed to ask because it will be given to them. The, the very same ones that he would address as the children of our Heavenly Father in the very same sentence. How could he call them evil? Well, Jesus here is alluding to the doctrine of total depravity, which is spelled out more clearly in Romans chapter 5. It's the Bible's teaching that all humanity has inherited Adam's original sin. It's also seen in 1 Kings chapter 8, which we read uh, a part of at the beginning of our time together this morning. Solomon prays, he says, If they, referring to Israel, sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. The Bible doesn't teach that, that all people are as evil as they could possibly be. It's not saying we are all the worst, you know, the, the Hitlers, the Stalins of the world, that we are all that. No, it's not saying that. But it does teach that nobody is a clean slate. Nobody is even a blank slate. Rather, even though we are made in the image of God, sin has corrupted our nature which is why Jesus can make this point. And it makes his point even stronger. Even us, he says. Even us who are not perfect like him, who are not good like him, who are not like our heavenly father. Even us, we still have enough light to recognize what a good parent is to recognize what a good father does. And if that's the case, Jesus says, well, surely we are, we are able to recognize how much better our sinless, our perfect, our thrice holy heavenly father would be at giving good gifts to his children, right? If us, even who are evil, can recognize that, surely we can recognize that the one who is not evil, who doesn't even have a skerrick of evil in him, is able to give good gifts. And this isn't just talking about his ability to give. Yes, God is certainly able to give good gifts. He can afford it. He's not broke. He's also able to discern between bread and a stone, between fish and serpents, between a lump of coal and a diamond. Yes, he knows what good gifts are. He is able to do that. But it's not just his ability. It's not just that he can, it's that he does, it's that he wants to, it's that he is ready and waiting for you to ask so that he might readily answer abundantly, gladly. This is yet another thing that the prosperity teachers get right. God is only too willing to pour out his blessings to his children. Sadly, what they get tragically wrong is that they think that God's good gifts are treasures on earth. The very thing that Jesus says not to store up. But to think that is to misunderstand what Jesus means when he says good things. We must understand that these words are not as the world understands them. That when he says good things, he's not referring to fine things. That he's not referring to, to everything else that, that everybody around us would point to and say, those are good things. Such definition, such understanding of that comes from a sinful heart, a desire that, that wants the things of this life, of this earth. 
No, we must understand this as Jesus means it. And in the context of everything that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, that it is clear that his disciples are, the, are, are to long for the things that are truly good for them. The things that are treasure in heaven. Even when it means things that nobody else would consider in this life to be good. Being poor in spirit. Storing up treasure in heaven. Seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness first. The prayer that the Father is only too willing to answer is the one that seeks to make every moment to make every day about his kingdom coming and his will being done. The children of the great high priest, the princes and the princesses of the kingdom of heaven, they trust and know that the Lord knows what is best for our lives. This is made even clearer in Luke's parallel passage. Luke also records a similar sermon to Jesus. We read about it in Luke 11. This is what he says in verse 13. It's, it's almost identical except for what he replaces good things with. He says, how much more will the heavenly father give, what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Doesn't this capture what the Christian's heart longs for? Now, our verse in Matthew, it broadens out what the Father gives, but it's along the same lines. If we are indeed those who store up treasure in heaven, if we are indeed those who seek the kingdom first, then what could we long for more than His Holy Spirit? What greater application of the prayer that God's will be done in our lives than a plea for His Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to empower us on our pilgrimage, to advocate for us when the enemy condemns us, to convict us of our sin, to sanctify us from our sin, to guide us in truth, to grow His fruit in us, to comfort us in our distress, to intercede for us, to gift us for the building up of Christ's body, to strengthen us in our faith. What more could we desire? What more could we ask for? What more would we want? When we understand that God delights in answering our prayers in accordance with His will, then the way that He answers them starts to make more sense. When we grasp that this is what Jesus is saying, that He's not just writing us a blank check for Lamborghinis and mansions, then it makes so much more sense. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that we are always going to fully understand why God answers the way He does in some circumstances. Deuteronomy 29, 29 reminds us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are times when God will answer yes or no to, to our prayers, and sometimes He will veil the reason for why that is the case. Sometimes there are very good things that we know are good and worth asking for, that God desires for us to ask for, and yet those aren't answered the way we think they should be. The conversion of a friend or a family member, for example. The continuation of good gospel work 
the dismantling of false teaching, the provision of a spouse or children. Sometimes we may not understand why God answers no to good prayers. But what it does do is help us to see that when we ask in accordance with His goodwill, He gladly provides good things, knowing what is best for us. So how do we ask? Well, we've already talked about the challenge of surrendering our will to God's. That's the first step. If that piece is missing, then prayers that God answers no to will be opportunities for the devil to turn us against God. When even good things that we ask for aren't given to us by God, either our trust in Him will deepen or we will start to believe the whispers of the enemy. We must trust His Word, brothers and sisters. We must trust that God is who He says He is and not think that we know righteousness better than Him, that we know what's better in our world or in our lives than Him. We must remember that He will never, ever, never, ever, ever, ever give you a stone when you ask for bread. Never. Children, have you got that? He will never, never, ever, ever give you a stone when you ask for bread. But know that also, He will never give you a stone, even if you ask for it. Because He's good. I say that because we must recognize that sometimes as we pray... We ask for the wrong things. That our, our hearts have not, or our, our minds have not understood what He has revealed to us in His Word about the things that we should ask for, the things that we should hope for. He is good. And we must continue to seek what is good for us. As James 4 reminds us, sometimes we do not have because we do not ask. That can sometimes be the reason. Or, as he goes on to say, we, we, we do not receive because we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions. So certainly as we pray, as we, as we consider what it means to, to ask, to seek, to knock, we, it is worth searching our hearts, especially when God says no. And it's also worth asking ourselves whether we are trying to game the system I don't know if you've done this before or spoken to somebody who has. You know, perhaps sometimes we think, oh, I'm asking for something which is good, that God, you know, is, is a blessing from God. And we tell ourselves, no, I'm, I'm doing it because I'm seeking first the kingdom, when in reality, actually, I just, I just want that thing. We ought to assess, evaluate, search our own hearts. Brothers and sisters, pray that God would sanctify your desires. So that as you pray, as you ask, in the confidence that He will answer, God is continually 
making more holy the things that you actually ask for. Let me give you an example, Acts 5.41. Listen to how the disciples respond to their suffering. They say, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's a good gift. That's a good gift. Do you think that's a good gift? To suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus? To be counted worthy? Do you pray for that? I'm not suggesting you have to, but do you pray that God would be honored in your life? That no matter what the circumstance, that even if it means the kind of suffering that, that, that puts you at your very lowest, you say, God, I want you to be above everything in my life. I want to seek you first. I want to see you glorified. I want to grow in righteousness. Pray that you would truly desire kingdom goals. But brothers and sisters, remember that as we ask, as Jesus has said, we can be confident that he will answer. See, the Apostle John echoed this same teaching. It's almost like he was with Jesus. And he says... And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I hope that the note that will be ringing loudest in your ears this morning is that he hears us. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Pray. Pray, brothers and sisters. Pray with confidence and boldness. Pray with expectation that He will answer. Pray with the knowledge that our Heavenly Father is ready to give us the good gift of His Holy Spirit and the good gifts that will spur us on to greater faith and righteousness. Pray knowing that you have the kind of access to the King of Kings, to the King of Heaven, that only His children can have. I quoted Tim Keller just a couple of weeks ago, but this one was just too good to pass up on, so I'm quoting him again. He said, The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. That is true of every child of heaven. The Christian life is not easy, but God has not left us without hope or without help. In fact, he stands ready to answer our cries, ready to respond to our pleadings for his Holy Spirit to help us walk in faithful obedience. And it brings us to the summary of the Christian life and our second point. Live life outward. If you have an ESV, you may notice that this comes in at a, under a different heading. 
in a different section. But I'll explain to you why I've included it here this morning. Now, the Christian life may not be easy, as I said, but it is good. And not only is it good, it does good. So even though in our cult- current cultural moment, you know, Christians are kind of on the nose, when true Christians reflect Christ faithfully, they are salt and light in the world. And verse 12 captures the essence of that life. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was a way of simply referring to all of the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus knew that there was, you know, that this doesn't just, you know, that, that the whole Old Testament is not just about this one statement. He's saying it's, it, it can be summarized in this. And after all, he would later summarize the law and the prophets with two commandments in Matthew 22. You might be familiar with them where he says the first most important is, kids, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you very much. You guys are wonderful participants. And then he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. You see, well, see, that second commandment looks a lot very similar to the one that we have just read, doesn't it? Chapter 7, verse 12. Now, kids, hopefully this one's a bit easier. I did mention it before. Does anyone know what this verse, chapter 7, verse 12, is often referred to as, what it's called? You in the front. Oh, no, that's just hands up going through thing. All right, cool. You? The golden rule. That's right. This is often referred to as the golden rule. Now, we don't know who first came up with that term. Uh, It was probably a pastor in England in the 1600s. But why do we call it the golden rule? You ever thought about that? It is certainly not a means to which you can acquire more gold. That's not going to do it for you. Now, we call it that because... It is, as Jesus represented, a summary of how we ought to live in relation to others. It is a way of being able to very quickly say, how should I live in this life in relation to other people? It is golden because it just so, so wonderfully captures that. And in many ways, this is a, a practical way of stating the other summary that Jesus gives in Matthew 22 of loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think it's a helpful distinction. Distinction. Because, you see, especially in our world today, we might be tempted to think of love as simply sending, you know, good vibes towards others. Oh, yeah, I love that person, you know, without actually doing anything. But no, this, this doesn't let you escape with just thoughts and feelings towards your neighbor. It demands action. Now, interestingly, uh, various forms of this ethical rule are found in other religions and in other places. You, you'll find them in, in all all time periods and and geographic locations. There are sayings close to it from ancient Egypt, uh, from Confucianism in China, and unsurprisingly in Judaism. And one of the most well-known examples is from the Mishnah, that collection of Jewish teaching. It says this in Shabbat 31a, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah and the rest is its interpretation. Now, what's, what's interesting 
is that most of the examples that you find in all the other places, if not all of them, are stated in the negative, just like this one. And so that is, don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. So it's possible that Jesus was actually the first to put this statement in the positive. But regardless of whether that was him, he was the originator of that or not, the difference is important. Because you see, putting it in the negative way like this, it very much actually embodies, I think, the way most people in the world think. You know, do whatever you want, as long as you don't hurt anybody. That's basically it, right? We don't want bad things coming our way, so we shouldn't do bad things to other people. Notice, though, how you can still obey that rule and live a fundamentally selfish life. Because basically, all it means is, well, don't be a jerk. And people think, oh, I can do that. And I can still go and chase whatever it is that I want to chase, do whatever it is that I want to do. But Jesus' golden rule goes beyond this. And it's appropriate because this verse serves as something of a bookend to this section of the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a paper Bible or whatever, you can scroll to Matthew 5.17 where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Jesus says this right after instructing his disciples to be the salt and the light of the earth. And in verse 20, he goes on to say that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In many ways, this is showing us that there is, it's a summary of the things that Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount. I think about it. What does this look like? What does it look like to, to do to others as you would have them do to you? Well, it looks like loving your neighbor as yourself put into action. It looks like turning the other cheek and loving your enemy. It looks like giving to the needy. It looks like judging not and getting the log out of your own eye. It looks like anticipating what you ought to do for others and doing it first without being asked, without it being a response to their kindness to you. There is initiative that is taken in the golden rule. You see, this is not just about avoiding what's wrong. It's about making sure that you make the first move in doing what is right. But again... That's easy enough to say. But living this kind of outward life is going to be a lifelong journey for all of us. How often do you think about meeting the needs of others in comparison to how often you think about meeting your own? I confess that if God were to judge me based on how well I have obeyed this golden rule, even if he was charitable in his judgments on me, I bet I would fail miserably. Don't I think far more often about my own needs? Don't I prioritize my own desires far higher than anyone else's? Kids, 
How many times could arguments with your siblings, do you think, be relieved if you treated them the way that you would like to be treated? If you let them have the last piece of chocolate. If you uh, let them have your favourite toy. If you maybe even did their chores for them. If you did their chores without complaining about the fact that they're not helping. Or how about this one? If you chose not to hit back. Now, kids, don't think that I'm picking on you because pretty much all of that could apply to the adults. It's just bigger and more complex. Adults, what could our relationships look like if we extended the grace to one another that we would hope others would extend to us? What would our witness to to the world look like if our generosity overflowed to others the way that we would hope it would be shown to us? Spouses, What personal preferences or selfish desires could you be surrendering for the good and the flourishing of your spouse? To be clear, you can apply this in such a way that it mangles what Jesus is getting at. So you could say, for example, this is how how it would go if you were trying to apply the golden rule in a way that served you and not everyone else. Well, you know, I'm an introvert. And I don't want anybody to talk to me, so I'm not going to talk to anybody else. That works out great. Or you might say, you know, I I hate it when people try to convert me to their religion. So, you know, I don't want to share the gospel with anybody else because that would be loving to them. You see how you can twist the logic? Now, even though that logic, like, fits with a bare reading of Matthew 7, 12, it misses the point. You see, the point of the golden rule is to make our naturally inward-facing lives outward-facing. That's the goal. That's what Jesus is seeking to do. He wants us to take the good and right attention and care that we would normally show ourselves and to turn it outward. But that's not easy. We know that. It's far easier to just stick with looking after ourselves and to let the living look after their own living. That may be easier, but it is not better. This is not the life that the disciple of Christ seeks to live. Brothers and sisters, praying that we would live out the golden rule, that is a prayer that the Father delights to answer. That is a prayer that he is only too willing to equip us with the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to. Father, help me live the golden rule. Help me to be more than just passively kind to everybody. Help me to actively seek their good. Help me to have the heart and mind of my Savior. Brothers and sisters, we will always disappoint ourselves in obeying the golden rule if we only think of it as a rule. You see, if you, if you, in some ways it's kind of an unhelpful term, 
an unhelpful title. Because if we just think of it as, well, this is a rule that I've got to obey, then not only will you struggle to obey it, but your heart will probably shrivel up. You'll begin to resent the very people that you are seeking to serve and love. What we must do is meditate on the grace that God has shown us in Jesus and seek to be like him. Because he embodied the golden rule perfectly. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You hear how that is reflecting Jesus? Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Doesn't that sound like Matthew 7, 12? Well, Paul goes on. As I said, it's not just an instruction. He shows us how we embody this. Verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. God of God left the heavenly throne room to humble himself. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On the cross. That is the Lord and Savior that we serve, that we put our faith in, that we follow, and that we seek to be like. That is Him. Here is your God, brothers and sisters. When we see this, then we see the way that we are able to even seek to try to live faithfully. The Christian life is not easy, but because we are in Christ and because of the magnificent grace that has been shown to us in him, we may turn our naturally inward-focused eyes outward because he did that for us. And when being like him is our goal and our prayer, then that is a prayer that our Heavenly Father delights to answer. Will that be our prayer? Let's pray that now. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond, we pray. We acknowledge and recognize that too often our desires do not align with yours. 
Our hearts do not trust your goodness and your will. So may we hear your word, trusting your goodness, trusting your, having confidence in the fact that you will respond to our pleas. May we not be those who do not have because we do not ask. May we not be those who ask with wrong motives. But may we be those who trust in your provision and who ask boldly, confidently, often and always. May you help us to live lives of faithful obedience in pursuit of your kingdom and of your righteousness in Jesus' name. Amen.